2: In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Scarcella finally tells his story, and so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Pushkin. Hey, Lost Hills listeners, it's Dana. I wanted to let you know that you can hear the entire new season of Lost Hills ad-free, along with other great binge listens, by becoming a Pushkin Plus subscriber. Find Pushkin Plus on the Lost Hills Show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm slash
4: plus. So the board that we're going to look at is right over here that I'm going to take you over to, but it's from the American Ladder Company, With a Los Angeles ladder company, we'll see in a moment. And and they
3: made. I'm at the California Surf Museum in Oceanside with Jim Kempton. He's the museum president. It's a small museum stuffed literally to the rafters with surfboards. The collection includes the 110 pound redwood planks that were used in the early days by people like Mickey Dora's stepdad, Gard Chapin, the fiberglass and foam longboards that became popular after World War II and the tiny, light, performance shortboards many pros use today. They even have the surfboard that professional surfer Bethany Hamilton was riding when she lost her arm to a shark attack when she was 13. It has a bite out of it. But right now, I'm looking at one of the first commercially manufactured and mass-produced surfboards in America, which came out in the 1930s. It's a thing of beauty, varnished redwood with a balsa wood stringer, It evokes an old woody station wagon crossed with a totem pole.
4: And at the very bottom of those boards was where they put the swastika.
3: The first mass-produced surfboards in America had swastikas on them. They were called, wait for it, swastika boards. That's right. America's original surf brand is associated with what is now a universal symbol of white supremacy and hate. Right there. And was it red or black or
4: It was it was painted it was generally black and just is that actually carved on them? So they were uh, yeah.
3: Swastika boards were made in LA by a company that built prefab homes and they were a huge hit.
4: They made all kinds of wooden products, like ladders, and they, and they made these surfboards. And they put the swastikas on them for reasons unbeknownst to anyone, I think, now.
3: A flyer advertising the boards shows a muscular, fair-haired man sliding down the face of a wave, a giant swastika in the background. Enjoy the thrill of a swastika, is the slogan.
4: The swastika has a very interesting story, both in surfing and outside of it. Um, it's an incredibly iconic symbol like the Cross or the Crescent or, you know, so many others. And it wasn't until the Nazis adopted it that anything was thought of it. But as soon as Hitler actually, you know, invaded Poland, they stopped making them. In
3: 1938, the board was renamed the Waikiki Model. 1938 was a momentous year for Hitler's campaign in Europe. It was the year of Anschluss, the German army's annexation of Austria, and Kristallnacht, a devastating pogrom against Jews in Germany, Austria, and German-occupied Czechoslovakia. The Waikiki model board didn't come with a swastika on it. I happen to think 1938 is a little late to have dropped the swastika branding. All the way back in the 1920s, Hitler had published Mein Kampf with a swastika on the cover, describing it as a symbol of Aryan victory. But in California, swastika boards were in circulation for as long as the boards lasted. Surfers didn't seem to be ashamed of them. They cherished them. Guard Chapin, Mickey's stepdad, was into making his own surfboards. And when Mickey got into surfing, Guard made one for him, shaving down an old swastika board. This would have been around 1950, when the atrocities committed by the Nazis under the sign of the swastika were well-known to the entire world. The question was, did surfers even care? Or did that symbol gain cachet in some of their minds? I don't know if Mickey's swastika board had an actual swastika on it. Doesn't really matter, though. Well, it didn't matter to Mickey. Because way, way later, Mickey would ride an up-to-date custom fiberglass board with a big old swastika on the underside. The existence of the swastika model boards is a kind of screen that surfers conduct behind. Nazi symbols, they can say, are part of surf history. But all that feels like a diversion from the real story, which is that America's shameful history of exclusion and racial policing continues to this day, on beaches and in coastal communities in the country's most liberal state. Mickey Dora didn't invent this bigotry, but he made it a style. He is the California folk hero and avatar of youth culture that made hate cool. I'm Dana Goodyear, and this is Lost Hills. Episode 5, Surf Nazi.
5: My name is Dan Duane, and uh, I'm a writer and surfer living in San Francisco.
3: And how did you get into surfing?
5: I had a cool uncle uh, in Southern California who was a a great surfer, a very dedicated surfer. So I kind of grew up wanting to be like my cool uncle, and uh, maybe also, you know, getting tacit implicit reassurance from him that surfing could be mine if I wanted it to be.
3: Deciding to pick up surfing should be the simplest thing in the world. You get a board, go to the beach, you mess around, you figure it out. In California, by law anyway, all the beaches are free and open to the public. But it doesn't always turn out to be so simple. It wasn't for Dan.
5: I was really an outsider to the culture. Because I was a Berkeley kid, you know, I hadn't grown up in San Clemente or Malibu or San Diego. And um, when I started surfing a lot, like at age 21 in Santa Cruz, the sort of, you know, local hierarchy, who gets to get a wave, who doesn't, was more intense. And I was really an outsider. And I felt that pretty acutely, you know. um, I had to kind of fight my way in.
3: Like happens to a lot of people who fall in love with surfing, Dan got a little obsessed. He wanted to learn about the history of the sport, specifically in California. He went down a rabbit hole of online photos, books, and early surf movies. And that led him straight to Mickey.
5: You can't really immerse yourself in a self-education project about surf culture without at some point bumping into stories of Mickey Dora in the early days at Malibu. And at the heart of it all was this guy Mickey Dora, was this incredibly beautiful surfer. I mean a beautiful man, so a very good looking guy. Very, very handsome guy. And to be honest, enviably handsome in a ways, a lot of ways I wished I looked. You know, he had this beautiful deep tan and this perfect kind of athletic build. And the way he surfed was just gorgeous and cat-like. And he he kind of emerges as really the central culture hero, I would say, of California surfing. And there were aspects of his identity that I, I never really totally loved to begin with. Like, um, he was a pretty wealthy kid. So, he you know, he drove beautiful cars and wore beautiful clothes and had a kind of surly localism. He's credited by many with being the sort of originator of localism.
3: This was what Dan encountered when he was first getting into surfing. Localism. Mm-hmm. Localism is a phenomenon throughout surfing. It's basically that some people, the self-nominated locals, treat strangers with hostility because those people are likely to get in the way.
5: At the heart of surf culture, there is this inescapable problem, which is waves are a limited resource. There aren't an endless number of them. And good waves that break in the right place at a good spot on that rare day when the perfect swell and tide and wind all line up, I mean, there might be a lot, but there just is not an infinite number of them. So if you live near them and you've built your whole kind of life and happiness around the good feeling they give you and you've dedicated your, you know, your childhood and your adolescence to it, and you've spent all this time and emotional energy fighting your way into the local pack and the hierarchy and all that, those waves are really precious. They're really Important gems in your life. And to have some random stranger just show up and paddle out and get in your way and take that wave that was gonna be your set wave, it's not it's not great. To have a thousand of them show up and do that is horrible. So that's kind of the fundamental driver, I think, of localism in surfing and of secrecy, right? Don't tell anybody about the break, don't tell anybody where we're going.
3: There have been many ugly instances of locals defending their turf with actual violence. For decades, in Palos Verdes, down the coast from Malibu, the local Bay Boys harassed outsiders so badly, throwing rocks at them from the cliffs above, mocking them with blackface, that victims sued in federal court. The case was dismissed— though a state court did ban 12 of the Bay Boys from the surf break for a year. Then, just a few months ago, in March of 2023, an appeals court judge offered an opinion suggesting that localism, as it was practiced in Palos Verdes, is a violation of a state law known as the Coastal Act, which ensures equal access to the coast. So this is an issue that has not gone away.
5: There used to be stories about you know guys would get out of the water and find their car tires slashed and surf wax rubbed all over the windshield or i think i remember hearing once a story about a horse's head cut off or a cow's head or something cut off and put in their driver's seat i did once a long time ago do a surf travel story about a remote somewhat secret surf spot in far northern california that got me like actual death threats uh emailed to me and and it was sort of an amazing thing because I didn't say what the place was called and I didn't say where it I I put it in an 80-mile stretch of the northern california coast that was as, pre- as precise as i got and i got um uh and some some guy up there went nuts and you know said i'm coming for your family and you know i don't know it was it was it was upsetting
3: for a while that is extreme <laughs> it was pretty extreme Mickey Dora claimed that he invented localism. And at Malibu, he was famous for pushing people off waves.
4: He glamorized the idea of being aggressive in pushing other people out of the way on a wave. And the idea that the wave that I take off on belongs to me. And that became codified.
3: This is Jim Kempton from the California Surf Museum again. Jim knew Mickey in his prime.
4: And that created a a sense uh, that was bound to be a conflict. And so you wouldn't necessarily say that Mickey invented that or that he created the environment, but he definitely glamorized it and he definitely popularized the idea of that and that whether they knew it or not, that trickled down in every place there was.
3: Localism isn't always racist, but often the factors that make you an insider or an outsider break cleanly across racial lines. Do you live by the coast? Did you go to school with the people in the water? Did you grow up on this beach? Or are you not from around here? On the beach in Malibu, Mickey was always spoiling for a fight. As he patrolled the waves he thought belonged to him, he used the symbols and the signs and the language of the most destructive hate group in modern history.
6: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com lost today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com lost.
1: Small business owners, this one's for you. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company.
7: It's almost here. The NYX anniversary sale starts this Thursday, May 9th, at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. So, mark your calendar this Thursday, May 9th, for the NYX anniversary sale. Get 30% off all leak proof underwear, shapewear, activewear, and more. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K N I X.com. Don't miss this.
3: Mickey, in spite of being an immigrant himself and having a dad with a heavy accent, leaned hard into surf break xenophobia. In a piece he wrote for Surfer magazine in 1967, he described Malibu as a place taken over by, quote, kooks of all colors, fags, finks, and a thousand other social deviations, unquote. In a 1998 interview in Surfer's journal, Nat Young, a famous Australian surfer of the day who knew Mickey well, said, quote, he's a supreme racist, always has been, When I was younger, I believed it was all just in mirth, that he was just jiving it all. But no, he believes absolutely in white supremacy, unquote. At some point, Mickey started showing up to the beach in an SS leather trench coat. That's the uniform of the Nazi racial elite who controlled the concentration camps. And when Mickey described his efforts to control the wave at Malibu, he didn't hold back. This is from a 1963 interview titled The Angry Young Man of Surfing, which ran in Surf Guide. Quote, These guys take off in front of me, and they're scared to death. They know I'm behind them, but they never know what I'll do next. They run up and put their feet on the nose, and I give them a little nudge in the tail block. They start to corkscrew. It never fails. I measure them. I dogfight them. I go behind and below them, and they're so out of control, they simply crack up. Unquote. This calls for some unpacking. To Mickey, wave enforcement was a military operation, a dogfight out of World War II. Only, he puts himself on the side of the Nazis. A Messerschmitt is a German fighter plane, one that was built using slave labor in concentration camps. That's what Mickey imagines his surfboard to be. So let's talk about swastikas. Yeah. This is the writer Dan Duane again. I asked him when he first remembers seeing Nazi imagery associated with surfing.
5: I must have been 21 years old, let's say. So one day I was at a break in Santa Cruz called Pleasure Point, um, right in town. Beautiful, beautiful point break. And there was a swastika spray painted on a seawall where I was about to walk down to the beach. You know, I think it said something like, kooks go home. At the time, I read it as wow, there's like some hardcore nasty locals around here who don't want me, people like me, to paddle out. But it was sort of later over the years that I started to see more swastika imagery in surf culture that I kept sort of thinking back to and remembering that swastika that I'd seen and wondering how to make sense of it and what did it mean.
3: Surf culture has been awash in Nazi symbols from the moment it went mainstream. Swastikas, iron crosses, SS uniforms, they're all over the place in American surf history. In the late 50s and early 60s, a five-part surf documentary called Search for Surf came out. Search for Surf includes a segment shot at Winden Sea Beach down the coast from Malibu in La Jolla in 1959, the year the Gidget movie came out. Young men in Nazi uniforms ride toboggans down a storm drain to the beach. They're greeted by a cheering crowd of shirtless teenagers waving swastika flags. The scene is absurd, but that doesn't make it any less appalling. The movie was directed by Greg Knoll, a big wave surfer who was also a good friend of Mickey's.
2: Greg famously talked about all of the stuff that surfers did in the 50s especially. that was designed with nothing more than to piss people off
3: surf historian matt warshaw
2: so he said "We well, you know you'd paint a swastika on your car and it would piss people off so you'd paint two swastikas on the car one on each side and for him that was on the same level as going to school as he did in a trench coat with each pocket filled with rotten fish he would just sit there until someone said what does that smell and it was just him trying to piss people off it was kids from 14 to you know 18 mostly doing Anything they could to get a rise out of the squares.
3: Then there's the craze in the 1960s where Southern California surfers were wearing Nazi stormtrooper helmets while surfing. I don't think they were worried about concussions. I don't really know what they were doing. I do know that it's hard for the surf community to explain. So they end up saying a bunch of different things, none of which makes sense. It was to... Piss off the older generation to be a rebel.
8: I saw it, but I didn't really realize the ramifications of it, you know, when you're a kid. It's just part of their kind of having an attitude, you know, rebel or something, you know.
3: It was a celebration of the victory over the Nazis.
9: The people from the war came home with these emblems and drawings and stuff, and they brought it home as souvenirs from having fought in World War II. It was a cool, ancient symbol.
7: I do know that, like, that's an ancient symbol, you know, that started in Egypt. You know, the American Indians used it widely, you know, and they called it the tumbling logs, you
4: know.
3: They didn't know what they were doing.
4: There's an enormous ignorance of any of of the actual representations that those are, what they stand for.
3: But Mickey was supposedly so smart and so worldly he definitely knew the implications of a swastika. Anti-Semitism was a style, and Mickey helped set the trend. He was the guy Surfer Magazine called Mr. Malibu, everyone's idol, and he was wearing an SS leather trench coat on the beach. What was Mickey up to with his SS leather trench coat and his swastikas?
4: So I think they were attention-getters.
3: Surf Museum President Jim Kempton.
4: Mickey was almost always in costume. Truly. It was rare for Mickey not to be like rock stars are. Why do rock stars wear, you know, sequins and, and, and fringe and, and leather pants? Because they're rock stars, right? It's to indicate to other people that I am not just a regular guy. I'm someone.
3: Well into the 80s, agro-surfers called themselves surf Nazis. And yes, these symbols have also been used by other rebellious cultures, biker gangs, British punk rockers. When it comes to surf culture, what everyone, even Kathy koner Zuckerman, will tell you is, no, it isn't what you think. No one who loves surfing wants all the Nazi references to mean anything. One thing you hear a lot from swastika apologists is that it was a different time. It was. It was a time that was much closer to the horrors of the Holocaust. Writer Dan Duane.
5: There has been this argument that the early swastikas didn't mean fascist sympathy. That they were just you know, symbols of rebellion, that they were just, you know, whatever the enemy is wearing, that's what I want to wear because then I'm like a bad dude. Um, Or that in the early surf movies with the, you know, with the Gestapo uniforms or whatever it was, the SS uniforms, that it's a form of prank and play and culture play. Um, And I'm not ready to say that that's 100% wrong. I'm just not ready to say that it's 100% right either. There's just too much in the air at the time. It's too close in historical time to, you know, that movie is made in the 50s with Auschwitz, what is it, ten, you know, 10 years before? I mean, Auschwitz is more recent to that movie than 9-11 is to us. It's, it's not, you know, it's not ancient history.
3: For Dan, it's a quick slide from the nastiness Mickey Dora put into the world to the nastiness that still exists in certain pockets of surf culture.
5: So now we've got like a rich kid in fancy sunglasses and fancy clothes and a fancy sports car passing bad checks and putting swastikas on his board and being a jerk to outsiders because they don't know how to surf and spewing all this vile stuff. I don't know. It just kind of started to turn, you know, green and gross inside and feel to me like there's something wrong with this. Like this just this guy, I don't know why is this creep our big culture hero?
0: Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakeables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, JPMorgan Chase & Co.
7: It's almost here. The NYX Anniversary Sale starts this Thursday, May 9th at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. So, mark your calendar this Thursday, May 9th, for the NYX Anniversary Sale. Get 30% off all leak-proof underwear, shapewear, activewear, and more. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Don't miss this.
1: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at t slash
3: now. In public, Mickey was slippery about his identity. Even as he wore the Iron Cross and the SS Trench and rode the swastika board, he referred to himself as a, quote, wandering rabbi. One of his closest friends at the end of his life told me he had always assumed Mickey was part Jewish on his Hungarian side. It's possible. The name Dora does come up in a couple of Holocaust memorial records from Budapest. But Mickey's half-sister Pauline, who didn't want to be interviewed, wrote in an email that she had never heard that the family was Jewish. I suppose I wanted it to be true, because it would give a different texture to some of Mickey's behavior. Miklos Dora, Mickey's father, worked for the Baron de Rothschild, starting in the mid-60s. The Rothschilds are one of the oldest Jewish families in Europe, the first unconverted Jews to be inducted into the House of Lords. They're also at the center of just about every anti-Semitic conspiracy theory you can think of. In some corners of the internet, they're responsible for World War II and
0: 9-11.
3: Mickey loved this connection to the aristocracy. When he had the chance, he stole some letterhead from the Baron's desk and gleefully used it to conduct his correspondence. Mickey also embraced the idea that he had a Romani background, calling himself the Gypsy Cavalier, like the Jews, the Roma were considered, quote, racially inferior and murdered by the Nazis. But when he had his own surfboard line, Decat, made by Greg Knoll of cute teen Nazis on the beach fame, Mickey dressed up in his SS leather trench and sported a monogrammed iron cross for the advertising campaign. Was the Nazi shtick just mockery, of dumb surfers for their ignorance by someone who conceivably might have been Jewish or Romani? Someone who, if he had grown up in Hungary and not Los Angeles, might have suffered at the hands of the Nazis? How complicated a mind game was Mickey playing? This place is cool. It's a Tudor house. In the middle of Southern California subdivision land, I see an old mustard yellow VW van that looks like it's in mint condition. Hi, I'm Dana. You made it. You made nice it. You to meet you. Thank you for letting us come over. I'm in Riverside, California, at the home of a guy I've been told knew Mickey better than just about anyone
8: else. I am uh, Rick Peterson.
3: (laughs) What do you do for work?
8: Uh, nothing. I'm retired.
3: You're a painter, I thought.
8: Yeah, I was a I was a professional artist for like three decades, and uh, you know had shows all over all over Europe and uh, here and you know, but uh, it got too nasty. Only about 20 years ago, I pretty much burned out on it.
3: Rick met Mickey at Malibu in the late 50s or early 60s. Mickey was about 13 years older, but they shared a worldview. They were the athletes at the beach, talking about art and fine wine.
8: He was my best male friend. Just, uh, if nothing else, I mean long-term. My God, I never knew anybody that long.
3: Rick is a bit of a recluse, and he says he's very reluctant to give an interview about Mickey. It feels disloyal. He keeps looking up at the sky cringing almost, apologizing to Mickey for talking about him without his permission.
8: My interest in doing this, really, is for, you know, posterity, such as it may be, or for whatever reason, to, to round him out, you know, and eliminate the bullshit, you know, and what, who he really was. He was a very nice, nice, decent person. Loved animals, you know, loved nice things lived very simply, but had great ap- appreciation for the finer things.
3: Rick says he wants to set the record straight because he knows that Mickey has a reputation.
8: Well, there's stories about that. You know, I don't know if I need to go into that. You know, there's enough enough of this, you know, legendary stuff, so-called, you know, that somebody else might have a take on. But yeah, he had, he had he had ways of dealing with the crowd. Let's put it that way.
3: Do you think some of the sort of bad Mickey stories are untrue or exaggerated
8: yes absolutely you know
3: and why do you think that happened like what
8: people are stupid <laughs> I have no idea that's their problem not mine
3: do you think Mickey played into that sort of myth of the dark prince no 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 Rick's made it clear that he wants to avoid controversial topics, but I have to ask him about Mickey's bigotry. One of the things that's confusing about him from an outsider, you know, someone who I never knew him, obviously, I never, you know. But a lot of people say, oh, he was bigoted against Jewish people and black people. And then a lot of other people say, no, 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 you don't understand at all. He wasn't. Do you have any insight that you can share with us about that?
8: No, 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 he wasn't. I mean, there are things that passed at one time that wouldn't pass now, not necessarily applied to Mickey, but just generally, you know, and now they have this woke thing. and I mean, my God, you know, you open your mouth and you got 50 people in front of your house with pitchforks and torches, you
3: know. I mean, I know that certain symbols like the swastika is kind of part of surf culture in certain ways?
8: Swastika is an ancient symbol from the Orient. You know, it's on Buddhas and American Indians. It's a great design.
3: But after the 1930s, it doesn't have the same meaning anymore.
8: Surfers adopted a lot of things, iron crosses and, you know,
3: Yeah, a lot of fascist symbols.
8: Yeah, I don't give any credence to any of that stuff.
3: But Mickey was into it. He wore that stuff.
8: Well, I think he put a swastika on a board one time just to piss somebody off. Just to be a little contrary, you know. Raise a few eyebrows at Malibu. Oh, look at that, you know. Yeah, you know.
3: After we talk outside for a while, Rick shows me around the inside of his house, which is filled with Mickey memorabilia one of Mickey's fake Rolexes, a passport he had made for his dog, Scooter Boy. It's basically a private Mickey museum, curated by one of Mickey's biggest fanboys. Just as I'm about to leave, he offers to show me his yellow 1972 VW van. It's kept under an awning at the backside of the house. It's in great condition. Obviously, a possession Rick is really proud of. Vanity plate? R. Volksy.
8: It's got to be waxed. I got to wax it. This is awesome. Actually, can't get in from here, and uh, you got to go downstairs.
3: For some reason, I peek through the back window. There's a surfboard in there.
8: That's a catboard dupe. I had a friend that made surfboards, and he copied copied one for me.
3: It's a copy of the kind of board Mickey made with Greg Knoll, a decat board. It's bright yellow, and it's got bubble writing on it that says. Idi Amin, as in the brutal dictator of Uganda. Okay, that's weird, but not as weird as what else I see on the board—an ancient symbol from the Orient. You've got a swastika on your board too.
8: <laughs> number th- number of things. That's my Idi Amin. You know, uh, you know. I just put that on there. No, I am not a Nazi! Remember Dr. Strange Love, man? <laughs> no! My inferior! The truth is, we were all degenerates. What can I say? Antisocial, demented, anarchist.
3: This is the first time I've seen, in person, a surfboard with a swastika on it. It's a board that's a knockoff of Mickey's brand, Decat, so it's an homage to the Dark Prince of Malibu, by a friend of Mickey's who's denied the entire premise of my questions about Mickey's beliefs when it came to white supremacy and fascism. He wasn't going to help me make sense of the contradictions. But in a way, seeing this board does. There's no nuance here, No getting it or not getting it. I get it. Seeing a swastika on a surfboard feels absolutely terrible. This is the layer of the Mickey Dora onion where I just want to cry. In the next episode of Lost Hills, Mickey has a secret life.
9: It was on Gretna Green in Brentwood, and there was a row of maybe four little one-bedroom apartments. Ours was in the back. It had a garage where he could keep all his boards and uh, cars, you know, his antique cars. And of course, I was always warned never ever to let anybody know where he lived. So our whole relationship was super, super secret.
3: What was behind all that secrecy?
9: Probably afraid that somebody was gonna come and steal stuff that he probably already stole. In other words, a thief is always suspicious that someone's gonna come and steal from them.
3: That's next in Episode 6, Fuck the World. Lost Hills is written and reported by me, Dana Goodyear. It's created by me and Ben Adair and produced by Western Sound and Pushkin Industries. Subscribe to Pushkin Plus and you can binge the entire season right now ad-free. Find Pushkin Plus on the Lost Hills show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm plus.
6: Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.
2: In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now... In The Burden Podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Garcella finally tells his story, and so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.